Amen. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors, and if today you have a copy of the Scriptures, please turn or tap your way to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, towards the back of the New Testament there. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen, uh, but we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible in a modern English translation. Uh, so if you don't have one, let us know. We'd love to give you one or show you where you can download one for free. Uh, for use on your devices. I, I hope that you are doing okay this morning, that you made it through the, you know, the cold and the snow. I, I'm sure everybody's still so pumped that it's still snowing, you know, that the winter is still going on. Everybody's really happy about it. I am too. Uh, I'm glad you're with us. Today, we're going to be talking about that multiply component, and I want to put it into what I think is a helpful context, or at least one that's uh, being talked about here in Second Timothy. There's a great pleasure that we can get and putting things back in order. Some of us go a little further than others with caring about whether or not things are in order. I mean, if you're married, you're probably on a different spectrum than the person you married on caring about how much things are in order. Uh, my lovely wife, it's one of the things that I really enjoy in our marriage is slightly changing things and watching her notice and then be okay with it until she's not okay with it and she has to go uh, change it. It's one of the fun things about life uh, in a marriage. If you get um, that same intense you know, irritation with things out of order, then you actually probably have a better life because you also get that intense pleasure of knocking things back into order. And I don't care how sloppy and slovenly you might be. We all experience that moment. I mean, everybody has felt the thrill, I hope. If not, let me know. We can work on it later. But of putting the last puzzle piece in. It feels really good. Uh, there's stories, I don't know if they're heretical or not, of my youngest brother like hiding a piece so that, oh, where is that last? Yeah, I guess I'll be the one to put in the last piece because he's got it like stowed away somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's stuff that happens and you, it's, you, you understand that temptation. It feels so nice to do that. It feels so nice to like let go of your lawnmower when you finish and just look at the yard that you've just put back into perfect order. Now, maybe the illustration is like shoveling your driveway or something, which is such a bummer, but it is such a nice moment when you get it all done and you look and it's dry. It looks good. There is an, an, a pleasure in bringing things back to how they're supposed to be. If a kid finally does clean up their room, if you do finally get kind of your desk organized, that, that moment when you look around and say, this is what it's supposed to be. God has made us to care about some of those things, not just the OCD kind of people, but all of us are made by God to go about this work. You think about originally, he puts us in this garden and there's an idea that we were supposed to keep it. But there's also this idea that we're supposed to expand it, that something of the order that God put in that garden was to be taken by Adam and Eve and then the little gardeners that they would produce out into this world around it. You and I do bring order to the world. I don't care what your job is. That's part of what you do. You take something that is disordered. Maybe you're a teacher. You take the disordered mind of a child and slowly bring it into more order. Maybe you're an accountant. You take the disordered numbers and books and monies and whatever not good at that, so just imagine whatever that might be, and you bring it slowly into something presentable, something ordered. God has given all of us that calling, and so we want to break down that idea that you're, there's spiritual stuff that you do, and then there's everything else that is just sort of neutral and for money and probably a little bit dirty. No, no, no. God has given all of us uh, a vocation, literally a calling, and that calling involves all the thousands of jobs that regular people do 
taking things and bringing them into something more orderly, into something more, literally, godly. And there's a lot of great writing on that. If you want to go a little further, there's a Tim Keller book on it, a guy named Hugh Welshall, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, Chuck Colson and Nancy Pierce, he co-wrote a book on it. The idea that we need to reclaim a biblical understanding of why you do your Monday through Friday, that that work is wonderfully important work. It's God-given. And yet, what we're focused on today, our topic for today takes that same thing and goes just even a little bit further with it because what you're doing is not just putting something in order. You're putting people back into that right order, that right relationship with the Lord. The idea of evangelism, the idea of multiplication, that you would abide in the Lord like a tree, someone that you put your roots down into Him, you start to grow, and that growth includes fruit. And that fruit is a gift that God has given you to the church. Love. You're definitely going to be connecting with believers. Those commands are always connected to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that fruit is also your impact out on the world. Other people learning about and beginning to follow Christ because of how your life reflects Christ, how your speech reflects Christ, that you have the divine honor of putting people back into the right order, that there is something supremely unordered, disordered about most people because of their relationship or lack of with the Father, that you are making the whole world new by fixing that, bringing that connection about. How, how do we go about it? Well, there's a couple of things that the Scripture tells us, and there's one passage that we use a lot in our evangelism training that helps, I think, put all of this in order in a really clear way. And the way we're going to kind of talk about it is in three categories. We want to clean our hands, we want to clear our minds, and then we want to speak. I'm going to walk through all three of those. Maybe I'm, I'm getting it confused a little bit. Dickie and I were talking about Friday Night Lights like clean hearts, clear heads, can't lose, you know, whatever that one, two, three is. Kind of forget that and put this in its place. Clean hands, clear minds, and then we speak. Here we go. Second Timothy, starting in chapter 2, verse 22. So slide down just a little bit, and it says, So flee youthful passions. This is the Apostle Paul writing at the very end of his ministry to Timothy, a guy that has been with him for a while. They planted churches together. They led churches together. And he's writing kind of a final sort of farewell to this protege. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is what we want us to think about. It's a bit of a bummer for some people, but it's a really important piece. In fact, I think it's part of when you finally get to, to actually trying to impact the world for Christ as part of what we stumble over. It does matter what your life looks like. It does matter what you do. We're talking about cleaning your hands. What is he talking about here when he's talking about fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace? That sounds like just sort of vague biblical language for be a nicer person. But Paul has put that into an argument. He's put that into a context that you need to see. Earlier in the chapter, by one verse, you know, go back to verses 19 to 21. He says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let everybody who calls the name of the Lord 
leave behind sin. Now, in a great house, they're not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Vessels. I mean, the idea is instruments. It could be plates. It could be spoons and knives. It could be other tools that you might use in the house. Instruments. Vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And then he goes in and tells them to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. What's he talking about? Well, it's command one. Clean your hands. Listen, I, I, I want you to know that we do believe what the Scripture says. You're saved by grace through faith. You are not saved by anything that you can do. And yet, to be useful, God is describing a process of walking away from the things that He hates and towards the things that He loves. You're going to flee the stuff that He hates and flee to pursue the things that He loves. You need to do that in order to be effective. I think you all understand that. How do you feel when you hear about a pastor that's guilty? Guilty of an adultery, guilty of some sort of money thing, guilty of some sort of leadership thing that goes even beyond, um, you know, some of the kind of broad categories we have for the way a pastor might fall. Does it make you more excited about Jesus? Do you immediately just say, hey, man, Christianity, we're covered in the blood. I'm not worried. I'm not worried about what he did. We're, we're sinners saved by grace, so he sinned? Yeah. Of course not. It's true we're sinners saved by grace. It's true that that pastor is a sinner. But it's also true that knowing Jesus, as that person claimed to do, affects the life of that person. It's also true that for those that are going to step into leading other people, God expects them to be an example. God expects us to pursue the things that He loves and to start, start to hate the things that He hates. That if you are to be a useful instrument, you have to walk away from things that are going to stop you from being a useful instrument. Let's go away from pastor and just think about it very practically. What does sin do to you? It doesn't just damn you. It does that. Anytime we break God's law, we're now separated from Him, and we have to be forgiven in some way. And that's the beautiful story of the gospel, which is that Christ has made a way for us to be forgiven and put back in right relationship with Him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go read Romans 8 and just weep with joy. Amen. And. There is an effect that sin has, a practical effect that sin has on a person, and it makes you less useful for gospel work. Think about it for a second. Jesus, as he goes about his ministry, is doing all kinds of miracles, but one of the ones that we see talked about a lot through the gospels is that he gives blind people sight. Why he did that is because they were actually blind and they needed to be healed, and he healed them, and then they could actually see. But part of why he did that Part of his teaching component around that real historic miracle was to say that many have blinded themselves to the things of God. They blinded themselves to what is good and instead are walking about in darkness. Do you understand that when you sin, you are blinding yourself? Literally. No, maybe not your eyeballs, maybe not physically, but you are blinding your perception. 
That's what God talks about. I mean, if you go about engaging in some level of sexual immorality, we're about to start a series in 1 Corinthians. I hope you come to it. There's some crazy stuff in 1 Corinthians about sexual morality. Not that Paul is, you know, describing, but he's just saying, hey, here's a, here's a situation and we want to not do that. The situation is insane. Come back. We'll talk about it. But if you're engaged in insane, crazy, even stuff the world considers weird, sexual immorality, or stuff that the world considers totally fine, but that the Bible says is not God's will for you, not even a hint of sexual morality, so maybe you just got a hint, then you are engaging in, you are enforcing in your own head through physical pleasure and your desire and then going through it, and now it's part of your history. You are engaging in something that is blinding you to what love is to what people are, what a male or a female is. And being blind, you're now a little less useful. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, of course, physically blind people can do a million things. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm describing to you is that if you don't have the capacity to understand what love is or what people are or who God is, then you are less effective in trying to share the gospel with the world. If you engage in sexual immorality, then you become less effective. You become blinded, do you see? It's not a salvation or not salvation situation. You're saved by grace through faith. Amen. But if you are to be useful, you need to clean. You need to clean. You need to clean the windshield so you can see through it. Not just sexual immorality, all kinds of sin. Any kind of self-assertion or pride makes you blind to who other people are because they go from being people, beautiful, made in the image of God, miracles, to just things that are either admiring you the way that you think they should or not. You lose sight of them. If you can't even see them, how are you going to lead them to the Lord? You lose sight of the Lord because He becomes a competitor to you. How common is pride? Oh my gosh, it's everywhere. Do you see why Paul would make it such a big deal? Think for a second about self-indulgence. Just frittering your time away, frittering your life away on stuff that's just frivolous. Don't you understand how it blinds you, how it numbs you to the tears that Paul uh, cried in the first part of Romans 9 when he's talking about how he could give up his own salvation if it might mean that the Jews would come to believe in Christ. He had that kind of passion for the people who were far from God because he could see them. Because he had bled for them. And you and I, man, we're so, we're so constantly tempted to just be frivolous with our time. To go after things that are they're not rest, because you can do frivolous things when it's time to rest if they help you to actually recharge. Okay, yeah, sure, go play a game or whatever. But if it's not rest and it's not work, it's just this giant gap of time that you fill up with just you being in charge of your own time and doing things that you think you want to do. When you do that, you're telling yourself that all this mission is not really that important. You've got time. You're convincing yourself. You're making yourself less useful. What is step one? Well, here it is, biblically. Flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, and become a more useful vessel, a more useful instrument. You're still His. You're still heaven-bound. Amen. Amen. But if you want to be effective, clean your hands. Purify your hearts. How do you do that? Well, honestly, you probably want somebody to walk alongside you in that. It's part of why we say love. 
connect yourself to other believers who can walk with you in that walk. And what you're going to find, hopefully, and we pray this is the case, certainly we want this to be the case, you'll find in that other person the humility to say, oh, me too. Let's grow together. Not hypocrisy, I pray not. But instead, a humble love that says, yeah, let's clean our hands together. Paul continues, he says in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. You're going to clean your hands, but you also want to clear your minds. Avoid the distractions. When it's time to work, we don't let quarrelsome speculation get in the way. That's um, John Calvin was a really um, brilliant writer back in the Reformation time. And he kind of sums up this foolish, ignorant controversies thing here by talking about quarrelsome speculation, arguing about things that are just speculative. We're not really sure. This is what Reddit's for, I think. And this is what a lot of Christians get sucked into. Not maybe on Reddit, but within the church or with people outside of it. It's starting to argue about things that we can't really know for sure. The Bible's very clear, and we get so messed up about this because we have this supreme intellectual pride that says, all of creation can fit inside my own head, that we as humans can understand all things. So when you run into any mystery in Scripture, there's a part of you that kind of hiccups a little bit. It challenges your pride, and so you say, oh, well, let's figure this out. I will know this. I will understand this. I am going to keep going on this, whether it's one of the beautiful kind of Given and yet mysterious concepts like the Trinity? Given and yet mysterious concepts like Christ's dual nature? Given yet mysterious topics like God's sovereignty and real human responsibility? Things like the end times? Here's what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29. I think God, just in his kindness, made it. 29, 29, so you can kind of remember it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of His law. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying two things at the same time that go together. He's saying God has His stuff that's His. There are places where the map ends biblically, and we'd have to say, okay, the hidden things are the Lord's. And He's given us all of this stuff. When it comes to the Trinity, we're going to affirm that there is both three in person and one in substance. When it comes to Christ's nature, we are going to say that he is fully man and that he's fully God, that God is really sovereign and that we really do have responsibility, that that God has given us revelation and he's given us all these wonderful things about the end times and yet no man knows the hour. There are things that are his and there are things that are ours. We're going to take the things that he's given us and we're going to really study them. And how do you make that difference? How do you continue to do that well? Well, you do what Paul did. Why does Paul study? It's out of love of God. He wants to see God for who he is, but it's also out of love for the person that he wants to communicate with. If you will pursue people, you're going to have a full list of stuff to research. We're clear. Hey, you want to go share the gospel? Just talk about who you know. I was blind, but now I see. God is holy. We are sinful, but Jesus... So joy, like that's it. That's all you need. That's enough to get out there and really make a difference. But if you start doing that, you're also going to run into some other stuff. You're going to clearly proclaim the gospel. Somebody's going to reject it, but they're all going to, they're going to reject it for a reason they'll give you. Maybe it's the real one, maybe not. Who knows? People don't even know their own hearts. How are you going to know their hearts? But they're going to say some reason. Now, now you've got something to go study. But why are you doing it? This is very important. 
Are you doing it because you have the intellectual pride that says, I can encompass the whole of the universe within my head? If you try to do that, your head breaks. Or you break the universe trying to make it fit. So much better. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Take the telescope he's given you. Enjoy the beauty that he's given you. Though it may be only a part. Let God be God. You be you. Love the people that you love and pursue. That's one of the things that I can be helpful with. I don't know a lot, but I know a lot about a lot of little things. I I can point you to the right people. I can Google real good when it comes to, to Christian stuff. Help me help you figure out how to help other people. But if it's for the point of helping other people, we're not frivolous. This isn't speculation. We're fighting for what matters. Paul fought for what mattered. There's all things. He's so embroiled in um, confrontation. Evangelistic confrontation, but also ecclesiastical confrontation. Confrontation within the church where he's saying, no, no, no. You do not have to be circumcised in order to come to Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with that argument, that seems like a real crazy idea. <laughs> Excuse me, you know. But biblically, there's a lot to it. It's a, it's a symbol of the whole of the Mosaic law. And Paul was willing to confront even Peter about this. It's not about whether or not we fight. It's about fighting over what matters. Why did Paul fight over that topic? Why did he go to the Jerusalem Council? Why do we have the book of Galatians? Because he wanted these people to come to Christ. He wanted the Gentiles to come to Christ. What sharpened his argumentation? His love. Oh, yeah. Love. Clean hands, clear minds, we begin to speak. Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He's describing how we're going to speak, but he is not saying less than we will speak. He's commanding us to speak. We are to be able to teach and to correct our opponents. But the way he tells us to go about this is so beautiful. It's so gospel-soaked. It's so jesus How does he tell us to do it? Well, he tells us to do it with kindness. We're kind to everyone. I wish we had a whole sermon here. Not just because you need to know this, but because the resources for why you need to be kind to everyone biblically are very unique in Christianity, and they're beautiful. It's this idea that all of us are made in God's image, and all of us have sinned against a holy God. And God loves us so much, all of us, so much that he sent his son. That whoever, whoever, he loves everybody. So whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a common thing for all of us. What does that mean? Well, it's why Christianity breaks through so many horrible things that are out in the world. Again, I don't have a sermon now, but I'd love to to help you think about this. The, The idea of the gospel is enough to lift the head of the lowest beggar and bow the head of the most exalted ruler. It is beauty. And so we are kind to everyone. He goes a little further about that, talking about it, how we patiently endure evil and talk about our gentleness. But first, he says, with clarity. You're able to teach. You're able to speak what is True. And again, this is what we're talking about with the gospel. You don't have to memorize some um, elaborate set of arguments. Don't. Speak about what you know. If you know the Lord, then when you go out and you tell people about Jesus, it's not to lead them into some real specific and formal presentation. You're telling them about your love. 
You're telling them about your heart. You talk about your kids so easily. Why? It's your heart. It's what's so close to your mouth that they ask you about anything. You start talking about soccer tournaments. Why? It's your heart. So we say abide first, love, and then multiply because it's going to go back to that abiding. Do you abide in him? If you do, then you've got something to speak about every day because you spoke to him that morning. And what are you telling people? You're not telling them, again, the whole concept of, of you know, apostolic Christianity. You, you're just saying, I was blind, but now I see. God is holy. We've broken his law, but Jesus has come that we might have life and have it to the full. Don't you want that? That's one sentence. It's not hard to, to speak with clarity, but it is over time, and, and you're going to get messy on it, so you keep coming back to this basic thing. We're able to teach. We're able to speak with clarity, that simple, beautiful Jesus. He says, patiently enduring evil. In my experience in Utah, enduring evil has not been swords or stakes or lions. It has mostly been stand-ups. Uh, yeah, well, let's do it. Uh, coffee, that sounds great. I'll be there. Half an hour before. Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Phone calls, text messages, where there's an answer, and then maybe a little less of an answer, and then maybe no more answers. It's real polite, kind of. I don't know. Is it more polite to just, like, not say anything or to just say, like, we're done here, you know? <laughs> I don't know. That's what it looks like for me. There's been a lot of stand-ups. There's been a lot of accusations, People come back at Christianity. Usually they don't come back at me personally, but they come back at Christianity and they accuse it of stuff. Accuse it of a lot of things that culturally it gets accused of. I don't know if they feel it so much as they're just using something to shut the conversation down, but they come at you. They come at your Christ. Maybe it's um, instead of just accusations, it's scoffing. People that just laugh you off. They don't even take the concept of the conversation seriously. I don't know what's more offensive to you, an accusation or just a <laughs> that you even want to talk about something like this. That's what it often looks like in my experience. I don't know what your experience is like when you try and talk about Jesus. But if you get that, how do you keep a cool head even if they don't? How do you continue to endure evil? Well, you know, again, we're going to talk about it in a second, but you go back to the one who is your true model in all of this. You, you go back to the love that started the conversation in the first place rather than the intellectual pride. Enduring evil, correcting. I know that this is so difficult for us because we all just want to assume that there is this kind of one global religion and we're all part of it and Christianity is just one flavor, but no, it's not. All religion tends to break into one of those two kind of categories of a code of righteousness that everybody must attain to or they're not, and so you're going to give them a ladder that they're going to climb and they're not climbing it, so you're going to give them a lot of shame, or it's no code whatsoever, and it's just all of this mercy and all of this kind of mutual acceptance, which can only exist if there's no truth behind it. It's only in Christianity that both righteousness and mercy meet, that truth and justice kiss in the person of Christ. And you've got to be willing to correct in that, to say that the Bible is reliable. Do you know if the Bible is reliable? You can. Are you willing to read a little bit? You will if you care about the person that you're going to present that argument to, that Jesus did, in fact, teach about hell more than anybody else, and also mandated that we forgive people 70 times, seven times, that you can really know 
And he says, correct with gentleness. A guy named John Stott, excellent. Anything by John, go read it. John Stott, he says, here we at, we get notes of humility, uh, courtesy, considerateness, and meekness. Its opposite is to be brash, haughty, and rude. We're not going to do those things. This is how we go about evangelism. I think most people assume evangelism has to be brash and proud and rude. It doesn't, and it can't be. We're commanded by much higher authority. It's not allowed to be. It must be with humility, courtesy, considerateness, and even meekness. So, clean hands, clear head, gentle, telling the truth, and yet it just seems like that's not going to work, doesn't it? I don't know. What, what is the elevator pitch? What is the two-minute gospel presentation that takes somebody and changes them? Creates a miracle in them so that they go from death to life. They leave, leave all of the life they have been leading and instead show up with you at Hope Church on Sunday morning. Like, doesn't it seem like just speaking the gospel is kind of ineffective, kind of pathetic? Well, if it does, keep reading. Verse 25 in the second part, it says, God may perhaps, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then we come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is where Paul helps you to remember what's true. I think part of the reason we think evangelism won't work is because we assume it's based on our strength. But it's not. It's based on his kindness. You can't, but he can. You can't speak life into existence, but he has, and he is, and he will. When you look to the one from whom all of this actually comes, then you gain that confidence. Then you gain that hope. It is true that you don't have the, uh, the skill to speak anybody into the kingdom doesn't matter how easy you think that target might be, how low-hanging that fruit seems. You don't have the ability, which means that if there's nobody you can convert, anybody who has ever come to Christ has come to Christ because of what God did. And if God is the one who is doing it, then there's nobody who is too difficult to reach with the gospel. Oh my gosh, just read the scriptures. What about Paul? We're reading his words, but he was going about killing Christians. If there was anybody that the New Testament church would have been like, well, maybe not. We won't share the gospel with that guy. <laughs> like, like maybe you're wasting your time with, oh, with that guy. Shake the dust with, with that guy because, you know, he's killing us. And that's the guy who's writing this passage. Why? Because Jesus can do anything. So even while things seem desperate. You know that you always have hope when you share the gospel because it is the Father who does this, the Father who is saving people from the one who is trying to, to kill these people, the, the enemy that we really believe in. And I'm, I'm running out of time. I want to talk more about that. But how does all of this come back together? All of this comes back together. This, this beautiful model of evangelism that we brought out clearly, the only way you're actually going to go about doing it is if you keep your eyes on the one who did it for because you read this and you go like, wow, Paul is telling Timothy how Paul shares the gospel. No. 
If you read your Bible a lot, you start to see that Paul, as he is writing, is thinking about the Old Testament, which is what he would have been really, really familiar with. As Paul is telling Timothy these things, he's thinking about Jesus, and he's using the language to describe how Jesus loves us by thinking about the Old Testament in Isaiah, these servant songs that happen towards the end of Isaiah. And he's seeing that the model that we have here is not how Paul shares the gospel and Timothy is going to be the same. Hopefully it is, but it's because Paul is following after Christ. You are going to see people come to Christ if you will live and do what your master has commanded you to do in the way that he has modeled for you to do it. So forgive me, this is a bit of a long quote, but Jesus, that servant, was a teacher. For the Lord God gave him the tongue of those who are taught, and he used it wisely. He knew how to sustain with a word him that is weary, gentle. So meek was he in his ministry that he would never shout or make a noise, And so sensitive that he would deal gently with people whose courage had been bruised and whose faith had burned low. Of course, there's the steel, uh, bronze forehead Pharisees that he does speak with clarity to, but there's also these people that he is so meek. He would never break a bruised reed or quench a dimly burning wick. And when people rose up in opposition to him, he didn't resist or retaliate. He gave his back to the smiters, his cheek to those who pulled out his beard, his face to those who spat upon him and eventually allowed himself to be led like a sheep silent and unresisting to the slaughter. You and I have a model in all this. It may seem dark until you remember the love that he has shown you that you might even become his. What do we do? We just follow Jesus. If you know him, if you felt his love, if you've been changed by him, then brothers and sisters, go multiply. How do I do it? Well, yeah, it's what we talked about. Where's the sin in your life? Let's walk away from it. Where's things unnecessary? Where, where is the contentious over stuff that's just insensible? How do you clear your head out? Do it. And then, brothers and sisters, with Jonas, with meekness, begin to just speak. Tell people about your love. If you're feeling cold towards the Lord, well, go back to Sermon 1 and abide in Him. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just take all this complexity that we kind of add to evangelism and strip it away. What are we doing? We're just telling people about the one that we love. People can't shut up about their kids. It's easy. We already know how to talk about people we love, Father. So I guess what we're praying is that you would forgive us for having a cold heart towards you that we would start to really warm ourselves in the light and the warmth of your love, the flame, Father, of your love towards us. And feeling that love, Lord, experiencing that acceptance and that total forgiveness, Father, we would start to show other people the God that we love. Lord, we were blind, but now we see. Let us speak about that light and that life to this world that you love. We pray that we would do that. Your name would be glorified. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.